Uh, my name is Bruce Struxma, and I'm the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. So if this is your first week with us, uh, or if you've been here numerous times, welcome. We are glad you are here. Uh, we are starting a new series uh, this morning on the book of Hebrews called Limitless. And we're titling it Limitless. Uh, as we look at the book of Hebrews, we'll see again and again that there is no limit to who God is and what what he has done. I did realize as I was getting ready for this morning and next week, I've started working on the next couple of weeks, upcoming sermons, I, I may have been wrong in what I named the series. I maybe should have named it Bruce Bit Off More Than He Could Chew. Because if you've ever, if you've read Hebrews, it is very, very dense. There is a lot in Hebrews, a lot to unpack, a lot of theology, a lot of knowledge, a lot of really, really good and helpful stuff. Uh, but it's a lot, and, and it's good. Uh, so I would encourage you that as we go through this, there is no way in the however many weeks, I don't remember off the top of my head, that we are scheduled to go through Hebrews. There's no way that we're going to get to it all. Meaning we're going to be going fast. It's not necessarily going to feel like that to you. You know, you'll get, get six, seven weeks in and be like, seriously, we're still in Hebrews? Or at least my personality would feel that way. But it's still going to be moving at a breakneck clip. We're going to be moving really fast. And so to that end, I would encourage you to be in Hebrews yourself. And, and whether that, you know, you know, comes alongside and supplements your normal quiet time or, or whether that replaces, or maybe that just means on Sunday mornings, you come here and you quick read through the chapter ahead of time, whatever, uh, whatever you feel like. But we do have in the back these, these sermon guides. I think that's personal study and discussion guide, excuse me. And on the back of it this week is a schedule of, of how we're going, who, when we're doing which chapter. So that if you want, you can be reading ahead um, or reading after the fact, or, or whatever, whatever you want to do. But many would call Hebrews the forgotten epistle. An epistle is a fancy word for letter. Many would call it the forgotten epistle, the forgotten letter, because it's kind of in this no man's land, right? So we have in the New Testament, we have the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we have Acts. And Acts is kind of uh, a follow-up to the Gospels, to the life of Jesus. It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit and the, and the disciples. Acts of the Apostles is what its full official name is, if you will. And, and then we have Romans. And we have the, what's called the Pauline Epistles, or the Paul letters from Paul. And they're, they're labeled by who they were written to. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, written to those people, the people of Rome, etc., etc. Then there's Hebrews, in with these other epistles, these other letters that are named by who wrote them. James, Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are the same John, to be clear. There's not 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as people, but written by John. And then you have Jude, written by Jude, and then you have Revelation, which is John's book about the end times. And so all of them feel pretty logical, and then there's Hebrews. And Hebrews is a little different, and it kind of sits in this no man's land, because while it is an epistle, it's missing some of the common things that set apart other letters. For example, uh, for example, when you open up uh, others, you'll read right away who wrote it. And you don't see that in Hebrews. 
And so we need to, before we dig into the book, I'm going to take some time this morning and spend a few minutes kind of unpacking the context, the layout, because we need to become students of the word. And not just the words on the page, but the context, the meaning, the purpose, the audience, all of that helps us understand better what is going on. Because if we just read the words on the page, sometimes we'll miss things. We'll miss things that we would understand better if we knew or understood who was writing it and to whom. And so I wanna take some time, but I don't wanna take too much time this morning because that's not really what we wanna do either. We don't wanna develop so much energy on research and study and history and context that we never get to the word. And so we have to strike this balance, right, between the two of being students of the word and being understanding the history, the context. And so we don't have this traditional method, like I was saying, like Romans, Romans 1, 1 and 7, starts with Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God to all in Rome. So here you have this very clear, from Paul, to Rome. And Hebrews doesn't have that. We don't have in the beginning from, you know, so-and-so to so-and-so. We, we don't have that. And so we have to put some effort into figuring out who. And, and we don't know why that's missing. So in, in some cases, some, some people think that, you know, when they would send a scroll, they didn't have the, you know, FedEx or the post office. They didn't have a standard system necessarily for how you addressed a letter to people because it was generally carried by a person. So here, I'm going to give you this letter. Please take it to them. Um, but they would oftentimes that from Paul to the people in Rome would be on the outside of the scroll and the inside of the scroll would be the letter. So there's some that theorize that Hebrews was whoever was, it was written by, you know, when it, when it got copied and passed along to somebody else, they left off all of that stuff on the outside of the scroll. And that's why we lost it. So that's kind of one theory. Another theory is that we don't have it because the person wanted to remain anonymous. Like, hey, it's not about me. Or, or maybe if you knew who it was that was writing this to you, you wouldn't take it at full value because I'm not an actual apostle or something like that. But, we, but for whatever reason, that information is, is missing. And some of your Bibles, if you have a study Bible like mine, and, or if you have a Bible on your phone, you know, and it sometimes comes with notes, and if you open it up, and we'll be in Hebrews 1 this morning, so if you want to be opening it up to, so you can be there, but if you open it up, sometimes it'll, they'll give you their best guess. But that, that's really what it is, because we, do, we don't know. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know why. But we, we do have some insight into them that we can glean and that you'll see more as we go through the book. So we know, number one, that the author is familiar with Jewish culture and religion. He's going to talk a lot about Jewish culture, about the sacrificial system. He has a deep understanding of that. Um, the author is very much in line with the apostles' teaching. There's some that theorize that this was somebody who was sitting there taking notes while an apostle was teaching, and we're almost reading their, like, their, like notes from school, if you will. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm going to write that down. Um, perhaps, uh, but we see in chapter 2, that they do not claim to have been present with Jesus necessarily. There's this comment like, what we heard from others we've passed on to you. You know, they're not saying like, we heard from, from Jesus ourselves. And, and you compare that to John, because John in 1 John says, 1 John chapter 1, he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So, so John claims this this. Test, 
you know, tactical tacticity. He he'd touched Jesus. He'd been there. He'd seen things. Hebrews says this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So, so we have this idea that, that he, the author, whoever it is, might be once removed, right? This might be a first generation believer. We see at the end, they call Timothy, somebody who Acts refers to that Paul calls uh, a brother. We see that at the end, they call Timothy a brother and, and those from Italy send their greetings. So we're getting this idea that, okay, maybe, maybe we know who it is. And so we have, we have enough information to pinpoint that whoever wrote it was known enough by the Christians at the time to be trustworthy, that their teachings were in line with the apostles and everything else that was being taught, but we don't know who it is. And there's a lot of theories out there. It could have been, some think it was Paul, some think it was Apollos or Barnabas. Um, Some even think it could have been Priscilla from Acts. There's even one theory that it was Mary, the mother of Jesus, but we don't know. We have no idea. And so you might be looking at me going, okay, great. Why did we just spend five minutes to find out that we have no idea? You know, well, well, maybe it's because we know who it was written to. Maybe that's the important thing. I mean, obviously it was written to the Hebrews. Our Bible says so right at the top. Hebrews, see? Case closed. Well, except when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, that doesn't apply to things like the chapter numbers and the verse numbers and even the names of books. Like, you, read, you flip open your Bible and you see Genesis, and you see Exodus, and you see Leviticus, and then you see Numbers. Numbers isn't the original title it was given. It's not even the second title it was given. It's the third, and in my personal opinion, the worst of all three. Because it focuses on the counting and not on the actual story of the book of Numbers, which the other titles did. But that's a conversation for another day. But the titles of the books are something we as humans added later. And so when we read Hebrews, that's based upon this idea that, boy, there's a lot of reference to Hebrew culture and Hebrew religion. So clearly the people who read it were Hebrews, right? Well, maybe for sure they had a knowledge of it, for sure they understood it. And there is this idea that we'll get to next week that there's some concern about them falling back into their old ways, into the old covenant that that would support that. But again, like the author we don't, we don't know. We don't know exactly who it was written to. We don't know who was the intended audience. And again, you look at me and go, okay, great. We just spent another two minutes. Bruce, is your sermon just so weak? You're trying to lull us to sleep with this data to say that you don't know, hoping that, no, I say it because we need to be students of it, even if the answer is we don't know. A lot of people, I think, grow up in churches that tell the same stories over and over and over with the same simple moral punchline because it's easy. And we need to have a faith that is deeper and willing to go places even when we don't know that we'll ever get a satisfying answer. But we need to dig into God's word to see that it is bigger than us, that even when the answer is we don't know, the foundation is solid. Why we read Hebrews is important, whether we know who wrote it or not, or who they wrote it to or not. But we need to do the work, because as we dig into it, it it causes us to start asking some of the right questions. Okay, if I don't know, does that change my belief? Or does that allow me to trust and to move into this place? 
because the Bible is not a static textbook with an author printed on the outside. As the author of Hebrew puts it in Hebrews 4, verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we engage. We engage, we dig in, we do the work, not knowing the exact answers, but knowing therefore that the word is trustworthy. Even if we don't have all the data. Because it forces us to dig in. And it allows us to see Christ as the ultimate form of our faith and to help us see this limitless God we serve, this limitless God that oftentimes the limits that we have put on our God are because, and maybe you've heard this saying, we, we, we define ourselves by what we know to be true about ourselves, but we define others by what we assume to be true about them because we don't know their hearts and their thoughts. And so we look at ourselves and go, well, I struggle with this and I don't see that in their life, so they must not struggle with it and that makes me worse and them better. And then we start finding ourselves doing the exact same thing with God. The things we assume to be true about God put limits on a God who is limitless. And so we need to do this work and see that even in the chaos, God is limitless. In a seemingly anonymous and unknown book, a plan helps us as believers in the gospel trust that God is in control. And so that, to me, is the theme of chapter 1. The theme of chapter 1 is this. There is order to God's plan. Because in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of an uncertain world, we need to know that there's a God out there who has a plan. And that plan isn't based on me and whether or not I can figure it out. I would love to be able to sit down and tell you confidently I know everything about the book of Hebrews. I don't. I bit off more than I could chew. It's a big book with a lot of deep theology in it. And we need to be students of God's word. Because when we study it, we see that there's order to God's plan. And our God is a God of order, not chaos. Our lives might be full of chaos. God works in the chaos, but God is a God who is in control. Always. And so we see a pattern that should bring us hope in chaos and in the face of uncertainty. So we're going to dive in. And we'll start in Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to start with the first two verses. And I would encourage you to read along as I read. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom we appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also, also he made the universe. And so we dive right in. The author of Hebrews doesn't waste time telling us who they are or what they're doing. They jump right in. The focus is on God from the very outset, as one, as, as one theologian puts it, from the very outset, the author runs a race at top speed, not taking time to identify himself or his readers. He thrusts all his energies into the first lines of his argument and does not let up the pace until the end. And so as we look through this first chapter, we're going we're gonna to see that the author dives right in. But we're also going to see some signs of God's limitless plan, that God's plan is not limited, we are. And we're going to see those signs early on. And our first sign is this. The son is greater than the prophets. And look at how the book starts. God speaks. Always. God spoke. God will speak. God is speaking. God spoke through the prophets. God spoke through Jesus. God speaks through the Holy Spirit. God is always speaking. God is active and alive. God is limitless. 
God is not some inventor who after creating the world and the universe stood back and said, there, there you go. Have at it. You're on your own. God is active and alive in our lives and in our world and in our community and in our church. And we need to see that this God cares. That we believe in a loving, caring, and active God. And that this God has a plan and there is order. God's plan is not reactionary. You know, oftentimes I think we encounter things and we react. We're reactionary. God isn't bound by time. God knows what is going to happen. And so God isn't reactionary. He is speaking. He is active. He is in control. And we see this, that he is greater than the prophets. That shows us there's a system. There's an order. There's intentionality to God's plan. The message may be the same, but there's a significance in who is sharing right? There's a significance is that, that he's clarifying that, hey, Jesus isn't just a prophet. He is greater than the prophets. That's significant, and we should pick up on that. And, and I talked about this a little bit last week in the significance of silence. The, the idea that Jesus didn't come to the earth, uh, he says, to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, Right? What God said in the Old Testament is the same as what he says in the New Testament. And Jesus tells this parable in the parable of the tenants that the prophets who came before him were speaking the same message. And, and he tells this parable of the tenants where, where in the parable, a man buys a vineyard and, he, and he, he, he lends it out. And then it comes time for him to get his payment, his rent. And back then the rent would have been in, 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 a, in a portion of the crops would have become his. And so he sends people out to get his portion. And he sends a servant and they beat him. And they, he sends another servant and they beat him and kill him. And he sends another servant. And the pattern continues. And finally, in Matthew 21, 37 through 39, last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now the Pharisees standing around don't miss this. They don't miss that Jesus is directing this at them and saying, hey, all throughout history, you've had the prophets coming and they've been talking about me and now I'm finally here and you're tossing me out and you're going to kill me. The Pharisees don't miss it. They get ticked. But because Matthew, the author of the book of Matthew, is concerned that we might miss it, he puts it in really clearly later. In Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus looking over Jerusalem says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. There is an order to God's plan. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a good teacher. Jesus is not just a good example for us to follow. Jesus is God and we ignore his message at our own peril. The message sent to us in the life and ministry and words of Jesus is the message of God. He is not just a prophet. And we ignore those words at our own peril. As he looks over Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you together. And this is deeply stated in the original Greek, but we tend to miss it in the English to translate the last part of the Hebrews passage 
To translate it well, it would make it really unwieldy in our language in English, but it should end something along the lines of, in one who is by his very character and nature a son. It's more than just who he is. It is all that he is. It is fully who he is. Everything Jesus says is in line with God. The author of Hebrews does not want us to miss this. So when we hear the words of Jesus, what do we do with them? And I wanna ask you this morning, where have you heard the words of Jesus or maybe from a godly person, a prophet, and ignored them? Where are the words of Jesus coming into your life that you need to hear them and obey? Because when Jesus speaks, he is not just a prophet, he is God. And we ignore those words at our own peril. And as we read scripture, we need to read it that way, not as a good idea, not as a suggestion, but as the very words of God, because that is what they are. And this leads us to our second argument. The second sign of order in God's limitless plan is that the Son and the Father are unified. The Son in Jesus Christ and the Father God are unified. They are one and the same. And again, the author of Hebrews doesn't want us to miss this, so, so the author makes it very, very clear. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And this is what I mean that, that Hebrews is theologically dense. There is a lot packed into that. And there's no way that in the, you know, 30 some minutes that I'm going to be up here that I'm going to unpack it. So we're going to go for an hour and a half. We can't. We, there's just too much here. It's a big theological concept to unpack. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, right? This entire verse makes it clear that the author is putting Jesus in a different category. Jesus is in a wholly different category that nobody else belongs in except God because Jesus is God. While the son and the father are distinct persons in the Trinity, they are one God. And that is something we believe. And as the church's Nicene Creed states, and states well, God from God, in, in, respond, in, in describing who Jesus is, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. And I share that because I think sometimes we forget the power of things like creeds. They unpack these theological concepts for us in very, very great ways that remind us that yes, a creed, the Nicene Creed is man-made, but the truths are God's. And when we say things like the Nicene Creed, we stand with all the other believers in faith who are saying the exact same things. Saying this is who we are, this is what we believe. Oftentimes they were written in response to, to a heresy that had come out. And in here, the Nicene Creed is written in response to this heresy that, that people are saying, Jesus, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't fully human or he wasn't fully God. Trying to, there are two heresies going on and trying to find ways to make it simpler. And it's not simple. The gospel is simple, but it's, but it's, it's also the doctrine is complex. And knowing who Jesus is and that he needs to be our savior is simple. Understanding him is not. 
And so this shows God's plan more fully, that God the Father and God the Son are unified. They're together. They are one. And sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll talk about the God of the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament like they're separate things. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's too vengeful. I like the Jesus in the New Testament. He's more my speed. They're the same person. It's the same God. He is consistent. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is not a different God. It is one God. And this was God's plan from the beginning. In Genesis, we see sin enter the world and break this this creation of God's. But God had a plan from the get-go, and that plan involved Jesus coming as the exact representation of God to die on the cross for our sins. And that's where the passage in Hebrews continues. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to them. This was God's plan. Always had been. So I'm a big fan of of gopher hockey. Um, And gopher hockey as a sport is a lot more fun to watch in person than it is on TV. Generally speaking, hockey is a lot more fun to watch in person than it is on TV. But gopher hockey specifically is a lot more fun because of the crowd because of the audience. If anybody's had the opportunity to go to a gopher hockey game in person, it can be an intense experience, especially if we're playing some other team um, that (laughs) shall remain nameless. But it can get intense. And the first time I had an opportunity to go see a gopher hockey game in person at the U was when I had a friend who was a student at the U. We were both in college and he had season tickets. And he called me up and he said, hey, and really his dad made him buy the season tickets so his dad could go to the games. He goes, my dad can't go with me to the game this week. Do you want to go? I said, of course, I'm in. Uh, Well, being a student at the U at the time, having season tickets means those tickets were in the student section. And if you go to a gopher hockey game in the student section, you might as well not have a seat. You will not sit down. They're on their feet the whole time, and there's like things they say and things they chant, some of which shouldn't be repeated in church. But it's constant throughout the game. It's an intense experience. But one of the things they do, the Gophers, you know, do something illegal, um, and, and they get a penalty, right? And so they put one of the Gopher players in the penalty box, and then the Gophers are playing shorthanded for a period of time. And then at the end of the two-minute penalty or the five-minute penalty, whatever, when that gopher player is released from the penalty box, the announcer will say, the gophers are back at full strength. Now, he also says it for the opposing team, but when he says it about the gophers, the gophers are now back at full strength, the entire student section responds with, always were. Always were. That's what we see here with God's plan. Always was. There may have been a time where it felt like God's plan was falling apart. There may have been a time when sin entered the world. There may have been a time even when Jesus set set aside something of his deity to come to earth and be human, but he was always God. This was always his plan. Always was. Always will be. And while that's not always true of the gophers, it is 100% true of God. Always were. Always was. So when it says he became... It's not saying that like somehow after his humanity, he became a different God or became God. It doesn't mean he wasn't superior before. It means he is. He is superior. They are unified. 
Jesus is seated. He's done. It's finished at the right hand of the Father. But this requires Jesus first to step down into human flesh, to take on human form, to set aside for a time a portion of himself to provide this purification from sins. And again, I reference the Nicene Creed, which says it so well. For us, it says, and our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified. Always was. Always will be. So we stand here today because of Christ. And so I want to ask you, where are you not unified with God? Because, because Jesus prays that not only is he unified with the Father, but he says like that in John 17, I want my followers to be unified with me, with us and with each other. So where are we not unified? Where is a spot where maybe there's something, as, as, as Stuart said in the worship time, where there's something that we haven't given over, where the chains haven't come off? What's something that's holding you back from being fully unified with Christ? What's that thing, that addiction, that thing that you're not willing to give up? God, I'll give you all of me except this. I'm holding on to this. This is still me. Where are we not fully unified as followers of Jesus? Where are we saying, hey, God, your plan might be limitless. You as God might be limitless. But this, this I'm better at handling than you are. And so I'm not giving you that. Not yet. Where are we not in unity with Christ as Christ is unified with God? And so finally this morning, our final sign of a limitless plan is that the son was in line with Scripture. The son was in line with scripture. When Jesus came down, he didn't go rogue. He was in line with what God had been saying all along. And that's what the author is saying. That's what he's building to. Hey, the prophets came and said this. Then he showed up unified with the father and did it. And guess what? All of it was God's plan from the beginning. And we see it in scripture. We see God's plan. And while we do not always understand it, and we do not always get it, we do not always think it makes sense in our mind, God's plan is limitless. How do we keep going when life is chaos and we have no idea what God is doing? How do we keep going when we look around and we don't understand and go, God, that doesn't make sense. God, I don't understand. God, I don't feel like you're here. Well, look at what the author does. Look at all the passages the authors will use. In your Bible, look at it. And I would encourage you, go read those. When he references another, but look at them. I mean, it'll take you half a day. Hebrews 1, starting in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Look at all of that. It's absolutely packed with scripture verses. I mean, all of them, he, he's like, and again, and here, and here, and here, and here, and again, and remember, and here. It's just one after another. It feels like you're, you know, getting hit by a machine gun or something. 
God's plan is not limited by our circumstances. We are in the hands of God when life doesn't make sense, when God's plan doesn't seem to be working, when there's chaos reigning, what do we do? We look to God's word to remind us that God is in control and we are not. And we look to scripture and look at this passage. Look at this promises from this passage. Verse eight, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Verse 10, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Verse 11, they will perish, but you remain. Uh, you remain the same, verse 12. Your years will never end, verse 12. Verse 13, your enemies will be a footstool. Look at all of those promises we have that God is God and we are not. And when our life doesn't make sense and when it's chaos, we can trust that God is, is, is greater than a prophet, that God is unified, and that God's plan is in control. And we can look to scripture to remind us of that when we can't see it with our eyes. And we look to the authority expressed in these verses and there can be no question about who we are and who we are not and who God is. And that is what we build our foundation on when life doesn't make sense. So let me ask you, what part of God's limitless plan, what limitless promise do you need to take home this week? From scripture, from this passage or any other, what's the thing that maybe came out to you in worship or in our prayer time? Or what's something that somebody has said to you that you go, I need to remember this week, this promise of God. This is something I need to hold on to. You know, Ed was talking to me before the service, and I hope this is okay, Ed, for me to share this, but uh, uh, as his son's father-in-law, right? That. Um, was in the hospital with, with, uh, with the aorta uh, rupture. I'm using all the wrong words. You know, and there's this 5% chance, and they rush him from Alexandria to St. Cloud, and there's a 5% chance, and when it gets done, and the surgeon stands there and goes, see what medicine did. And we can stand there and say, no, see what God did. Whether the surgeon thinks he did it by himself or whether God worked with the surgeon, we know the truth that God worked. And God used that surgeon, yes, but God worked because people prayed. So what promise of God do you need this week so that you can stand there when the world says to you, no, no, that wasn't God, that was me. And we can say, no, I know my God is limitless. And I know my God is at work because I know the truth of God and who he is and his word. And that is my foundation in this chaos, to trust God's limitless plan. So take that time this week, take that truth home. And as the worship team comes up here, as we sing one more closing song, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray before we sing. And so I'd ask you to pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you are in control. God, we thank you that you are God and we are not. God, help us to live that reality. God, help us to stand in that truth that when the rest of the world looks at us and said, no, 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 that was a coincidence. God, we can sit back and say, no, you are God. And we trust that you are at work. Lord, help us this week to trust your limitless plan. And whatever we do and whatever we say, God, may we bring you the honor and the glory. And we pray this in your name. Amen. And as we end this morning, we are going to end by reading the Nicene Creed together. And as I stated earlier, the reason why, because we stand on a, a history of faith and we stand with other believers when we say it, but also because while it is man-made, it contains godly truth. And so would you say it with me out loud? 
We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.